0: Hi everyone, Lynn Smith here, and welcome to Stroller Coaster, the podcast that takes you on the wild ride of parenting that we're all on together, created by Munchkin. No wonder they're the most loved baby brand in the world. I cannot wait for today's episode because we're going to talk about how to navigate our kids' emotions. With me, as always, my producer, Justin. Hello. Justin, do you feel like the girls have this kind of, you know, fall down over the way that you cut their grilled cheese ever? (laughs)
1: Big emotions are big in my house as well.
0: <laughs> For my son, it's like, I cut his pancakes and he lost his mind. It's like, I didn't want them cut. You know, this is a really big issue in a lot of people's house. So if it sounds familiar to you, do not worry. We've got you covered. We talked to child development expert, Deborah Farmer-Chris, and then we're going to hear a super relatable story from Rebecca Shrag Hirschberg. She got creative with her son's tantrums and saw some real results. Let's dive in. Deborah Farmer-Chris is a child development expert and the author of the All the Time Picture Book series. Her bylines include PBS Kids, The Washington Post, and Oprah Daily. She also spent 20-plus years as a K-12 teacher and administrator. Deborah, what's so challenging is the big, big emotions that children have, and it causes us to have big reactions to their emotions. So first, tell me how we can navigate some of these big feelings
2: my number one piece of advice is that we need to get curious. Mm. Our kids are not doing this to harm us or to embarrass us. And often when we watch our kid have a meltdown, our goal is to get through it as fast as possible, maybe to consequence them out of it. Yeah. But the truth is that there's a lot of learning to be had in these big, strong emotions when they're younger. And let me just tell you a quick story about that. My son was five and He was just having one of those days where there was kicking and hitting and yelling. And finally, I sent him to his room. I sent myself to mine for a timeout. And I went back and I said, you seem to have a lot of mad inside today. And from under the covers, he said, I'm not mad. I'm sad. Something is dead that should be alive. And I realized that he had the day before found this little caterpillar and put it in a jar with some leaves. And that next morning, it was dead. I cleaned it out. How attached could he be? Well, he was. He was sad. And it came out in this big tantrum-y way. Mm. But I realized that that's emotion I want to protect and promote in a little boy. I want him to feel deeply Mm. and care about other creatures. And what I would have lost if in that moment I had not gotten curious and tried to just punish him and brought him back out after an hour. And I also realized in that moment that part of the reason I was out of sorts is that it was near Father's Day and my father passed away several years ago. And underneath my mad was probably other feelings too. Anger is a tip of the iceberg emotion and underneath is almost always something else for us to figure out with our kids. And here's the thing, if a child could be acting with more self-control, Generally, they probably would be. So, I think you have to assume if a kid is breaking down, there's something going on underneath and they need our help. When they're feeling these big emotions,
0: it's hard for us to self regulate. So, what are some of the strategies for us as
2: parents? Our emotional regulation journey is really a lifetime journey. But think about when your kids are babies, right? When they start to cry, you're not getting mad at them necessarily. You're going through the checklist. Are they hungry? Are they tired? Do they need their diaper changed? We are getting curious about what need needs to be met. As they get older, when they're having their meltdown, it's the same thing. There's an unmet need. One of the acronyms that I use is turning down the fire hose. H, are they hungry? O, are they overstimulated? It's been a long day at the zoo. S, do they need sleep? Are they tired? And E, exercise. Do they need to move their body? And how often for us too? like, am I really mad at the world or do I need to eat something and have a cup of coffee?
0: Or am I just hangry? I yeah. love that example because it's like, we, we're we the same way as adults. If I'm sleepy, I'm going to be
2: a pill. And, and it's the same with our kids. You know, when they're calm, you can return to that moment and say, wow, that was kind of a tough time at the grocery store. You were really upset. But you can also start talking about options then. This is where you can start building their toolkit. So mm-hmm. for young kids who don't have the vocabulary yet, creating a visual chart with when you start to feel your body go out of control, here are three things you could try. Maybe you could hug your stuffy. Maybe you could come snuggle with me. Maybe you could go play with the dog. And then they start to learn that there are strategies for when they feel this way. I love it. Once I was taking my daughter to a back to school haircut and I got a phone call saying, why aren't you here yet? Because I had put the time down wrong and I could feel that I was getting upset. And so I, I turned to my daughter and I said, My heart is starting to race. My palms are sweating. I'm gripping the wheel. I'm having a stress response because I don't like being late. And so, uh, rather than getting cranky at her or yelling profanities at the drivers in front of me, I tried to explain to her what was happening in my body because, of course, this happens in her body too. It happens in all of our bodies. And sometimes being able to recognize that when our breathing gets shallow, when our palms start to sweat, oh, That's my body having a stress response. It will pass. And so I I then said to her, I'm going to do some deep breathing because I know it helps. I got silly about it. I breathed in dramatically. I breathed out dramatically. (laughs) And we had a good laugh, which, of course, helped me self-regulate. But it also reminded me that we sometimes as adults assume our kids know how to do this. It doesn't mean they do. So part of parenting is making the implicit explicit is taking what we know in our heads and saying it in really concrete ways for our kids. And you you call it a
0: vocabulary. That's our job as a parent to give them this vocabulary of words to define what it is that they're feeling, to give words to it. And you do it through your children's books. You know, even your book, You Have Feelings All the Time. Just getting them aware that they have feelings is part of that. Can you talk to me a bit about how your children's book do that?
2: So the book, You Have Feelings All the Time, really has a basic message that you have feelings and your feelings have names. And there's really great research out there on something called emotional granularity, which is just a fancy way of saying that if you can name your emotions with specificity, it helps you regulate them. The research shows that when you can speak with specificity, it increases your emotional self-regulation, which leads to less substance abuse, less violence for teens and adults, healthier relationships, And ultimately, to making better choices. They're just great outcomes for kids who can say, am I enraged or am I scared? And sometimes it's, am I enraged or am I annoyed? Am I irritated? There are a lot of degrees of feeling angry. So for very young kids, it's happy, sad, angry, scared. Those are kind of your baseline. But then as adults, we can start saying, you're really frustrated you know? Mm -hmm. So we're adding a little extra nuance to it. Your friend moved away. That's sad. That can feel lonely when your friend leaves. You're adding an extra layer there. The other book, I Love You All the Time, that phrase came about actually from a very vulnerable parenting moment when my daughter was two and having one of those meltdowns that I I couldn't solve. And I finally scooped her on my lap after trying everything else. And I said to her, you know, I really love you when you're mad. And she Mm -hmm. stopped and she looked at me in this perplexed way. Are you crazy, mom? <laughs> exactly. So I kept going. I said, you know, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're scared. I love you when you're mad. I love you all the time. To have that just comforting baseline that my love is not dependent upon their emotions. It's not dependent on them behaving well. That doesn't mean I'm not going to have boundaries or I'm not going to have rules or expectations, but my care for them is not dependent on them being a perfect kid mm-hmm. a powerful messaging for kids is that they are loved and lovable all the time and that their emotions are just part of it
0: oh, i just it resonates so much and makes so much sense in all truth it it makes me feel a bit guilty as a parent that i didn't start this really early i learned later on the benefits of this how early
2: can we start this You can start at birth. Meeting the needs of kids is their very first emotional education. So you were doing it because you were singing and cuddling and loving, and that is their emotional education, is that then they have needs, those needs are met by someone who loves them. Sometimes a parent will say, you know, my kid's not talking to me. They're yelling and slamming doors, and I'll say they are talking to you through yelling and slamming doors. You may not (laughs) like that conversation, but they're telling you something, and you got to get curious about what they're telling you. Are there things that we can put into place ahead of time, before
0: things fall out, before the slamming of the door that maybe will prevent some of these emotional storms?
2: Well, first, you're never going to prevent them all, and you shouldn't, right? And so that's just an unrealistic standard. When there are changes that are about to happen in their life, big or small, talking about it in advance is so helpful because all change is stressful, even if it's good change. So starting a new school year, getting a new coach, moving – changes in friend situations, even changing your dinnerware if you're a two-year-old. That can be a crisis if the Red Bull is not there for breakfast and they're used to having it. The more that we can provide structure that allows them to feel in control, then there are partners in it versus feeling like, oh, I'm out of control. And then, you know, look what happens. Mom gets mad. So part of that scaffolding is to recognize that in the long game, we're working toward them being able to do this by themselves and they will get there but in the short term, they need our help and scaffolding. Helping them have the coping skills to go through it, right? When they are in the middle of a storm, what are the things that they know they can do that help them feel better? And then as much as you can, previewing with them when changes are coming. Those are two things that do help. So previewing can be something as simple as you have a new babysitter coming. So when they get here, What do you want to show them first? Should we show them the playroom or show them the bedroom? If they're starting a new school year, going to back to school night, getting to know their teacher's name, we might think they're going to be nervous for a whole new school year, and they might just be wondering what's the school bus like. Let's talk through pulling out some books. Let's read back to school books. Let's read books about... Change or whatever change you're going through, I guarantee you there's a picture book and your children's librarian can help you find it. But again, you know, it is part of being human that sometimes you're just gonna be overwhelmed by emotion. But you gave us such tangible things that we can do. It's such a pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me, Lynn. You know, Justin, I can really see how this works. This week, my son had a day where it was just he was falling out all day. I mean, he Mm. was just losing it. Really, really big emotions. And I finally sat him down and I was like, what's going on? Are you upset about something? And he didn't say anything. And then I got a little bit more curious. And I said, are you upset because we have a new babysitter? Trying to think about what was different. Mm. And then he started talking about how he didn't like this particular babysitter and he was acting out because of it. And it was just because I asked those questions, I got curious and I just realized, I don't know if I do that enough.
1: It is amazing how one question can really just open up a conversation with our kids. You know, hearing all this uh, talk about managing emotions, uh, I want to throw in some facts about emotional intelligence, which is how we measure a person's ability to manage, control, and express their emotions, just like Mm -hmm. what we've been talking about. Uh, Study after study has shown that kids with high emotional intelligence, or EQ, earn better grades, are more cooperative, and make better classroom leaders. So this work is really important.
0: Yeah, it really is. That's such a good point and some really good information. Big emotions like tantrums, it's so challenging for us parents. And it's funny, they always sort of seem to happen at the exact wrong time and wrong place, right? Well, today, Rebecca schrag Hirschberg tells us how she got creative to help her son go from melting down to calming down. Here's our correspondent,
3: Fleece, with the parenting story of the day. Rebecca is a child psychologist, but that doesn't mean her son doesn't have tantrums.
4: I remember one day getting him dressed in the morning. He went to daycare. Of course, we were on the clock. I had a client and my husband was working and we had to get him dressed. So I pulled out his sweatpants. And on this particular morning, he did not want to put them on. And it started with his just sort of pushing me away a little bit and kicking. And it almost felt like he was being playful. And I knew that maybe if I took away my attention, that that would make it better. And frankly, it just escalated where he was screaming and I was holding the pants and he was kicking and my voice was starting to raise. and Henry, we have to do this. I have to go. I have a client. Yeah, I have a client. That means a tremendous amount to a toddler. I don't remember if that was a tantrum where I started crying. Those did exist. <laughs>
3: She knew she had to do something different,
4: so instead of seeing the tantrum as a crisis, she tried to make it fun. I started making jokes with the pants. I put the pants on my head when I said, is this where they go? Do the pants go on my head? And he giggled, and then I said, do the pants go on your head? And ultimately, I landed on this idea that we could put one pair of pants on his legs, the way that pants go, and then the other pair of pants on his arms and he could be an octopus. And then I realized that I didn't have to wait for him to protest. We could have the whole activity be less about getting dressed and more about playing the octopus game. So that's what it became. It was like, now it's time to play octopus. If I started earlier and it took more time, I can just make it more playful and more fun. It was all about how do I stay one step ahead, bringing in games and bringing in creativity and playfulness and connectedness as opposed to a competition or a struggle between me and my child. It wasn't me against Henry in the struggle of the pants. It was me and Henry on the same team needing to solve the problem of how lousy it feels to put pants on when you don't want to.
3: Her problem solving was really tested another day, this time at three in the morning.
4: I had an infant, Zeke, sleeping in a bedroom that shares a wall with Henry, who was three at the time. And in the middle of the night, he yelled for me, mommy, mommy. I ran and what is it? What is it? And he said, mommy, I need more ice in my water. And I, I mean, i it's three in the morning. I'm so sleep deprived. You now have such a sophisticated palate that we need like ice cold water throughout the night. I said, absolutely not. This is not an emergency. This is not a reason to wake me up. You're not getting ice in your water. And he started yelling and protesting. I thought to myself, I have Zeke sleeping in the next room. And in about 45 seconds, he's gonna wake up because Henry's screaming. I had a big presentation the next day. And my number one goal was to get everybody, including myself, back to sleep. I had the presence of mind somehow to pause and look at the whole picture and decide intentionally what I wanted to do here, what was important. And that the fastest way to get there was gonna to be to get him ice for his water.
3: If she got him the ice, would she be doing what parents worry about, like reinforcing behavior or setting a precedent?
4: I said, okay, I'm gonna get you ice for your water. And I, I didn't say, fine, <laughs> you, know, you win. I'll get you ice. Ugh. I said out loud, it was important to practice. I said, I'm changing my mind. I'm going to get you ice for your water because what's most important is that we all go back to sleep. And that's a decision that I, as the grown up, am making. I got him ice for his water and we all went back to sleep. The only choice point I had was do I get him ice in his water right now? If this is something that happens every night, I can then make a different choice. And it didn't become a pattern. It was a one-off, thankfully. It's such a good example of How important it is sometimes to push back that notion of the slippery slope or the precedent or the reinforcing behavior and actually look at what's going on and make a decision in that moment based on that moment's priorities. The most important thing I could do when my child was having a tantrum was pause and calm myself down, whether that was taking a deep breath or putting my hand on my heart. closing my eyes for a moment. If I could just pause to get myself in a more centered place, then I could decide in an intentional way what I wanted to do.
3: She also set limits in a new way.
4: I think a lot of parents feel like if they're setting a limit, they have to show their child who's boss and that that's the important piece. The goal is actually to remain connected to your child and potentially still set the limit if the limit is important. But there's no reason we can't do that with empathy and connecting with our kids. So when kids ask for another cookie or they ask to watch another show, parents often try to go at that with logic. You know, you just watched two shows or you already had three cookies. A child is new to the world. It's like, right, I had three cookies. They were all delicious. That's why I want six more. Or yeah, I watched two shows. It was the best part of the afternoon. Why can't we keep it going? And so there's no reason why we can't say no, but say no in a way that acknowledges that we understand that. I get it. You want to eat the entire box because they're so yummy. We can't. And I completely get that you want to. The other thing that I think as parents, we forget in terms of setting limits is it doesn't feel good not to get what you want when you want it. That's not being spoiled. Those first experiences in the first few years where your brain is by definition egocentric, you only see the world through your own perspective. It makes absolutely no sense that you wouldn't be able to get what you want when you want it. And that not getting what you want when you want it is confusing and feels terrible. We have to show them that, yeah, that feeling is a really lousy one and they can handle it. And we're not going to say yes, but we're going to be compassionate about the fact that that feels lousy and that's new for them.
3: Progress was happening at home, but what about tantrums in public?
4: I've seen this and I've done this where my kid will start having a tantrum in the checkout line at a supermarket. And I notice that I give this lady behind me that I've never seen in my entire life This empathic stare like, oh, can you believe this kid? As if it's more important to connect with this random stranger than connecting with my child. When your kids are having tantrums in public, it's really hard. And you feel judged and you feel as though there's something about your kid's behavior that reflects on you and your skill as a parent. Your child's behavior at Target is not a reflection of who they are as a child or who you are as a parent. But it's really hard to remember that. Parents become much more invested in what I call impression management managing other people's impression of them as a parent than they are in actually parenting the way that feels good to them. Parents often tell me that tantrums become worse at big family celebrations. Kids are out of their routines, there's overstimulation. The other thing that happens is that there are people there that we believe are judging our parenting. And so we are parenting in a performative way to impress, let's say, parents or our in-laws. And your kid is like, what are you? I've never heard you say that before in my entire life. What are you even, like? Where's my mom? Not only am I around all these family members that I don't know very well, but my mom is missing. <laughs> and then our kids get more and more dysregulated because it's a really unfamiliar way of parenting and they feel alone and confused.
3: Rebecca said that when we connect with our kids, we can help them tolerate difficult feelings as not being a huge deal.
4: When people typically talk about tantrums, they think about a child's behavior. This is a child acting out, being demanding, and actually it's much more about the relationship between the child and the caregiver because it's about how we as grown-ups respond to our children's frustration. Those feelings are really new to toddlers, and the best thing we can do is join with them. Tantrums start, perhaps because your child doesn't want to put their pants on, but they continue and they intensify when your child feels like you just don't get it. What my kid really wants in that moment is for me to understand how much he hates pants and to connect with him so that it doesn't feel Quite as lousy that he does have to put the pants on. Before I started getting creative with tantrums, there were more and more intense tantrums. Those were harder for him and harder for me. I felt helpless and kind of out of control as if I should be doing something somehow. And my son, I can only imagine, felt more frustrated, more alone. And so when I was able to get more creative and more connected with my son during tantrums, I think that was a secret sauce.
3: Pausing, getting creative, and connecting gave Rebecca the ability to navigate her son's emotions. What she didn't expect was that it would give Henry an ability to navigate his own.
4: My son got really frustrated about something, and I swooped in to try to fix it for him. And he said something like, Mommy, I'm just frustrated. It'll pass. So that was a real moment of pride for me.
0: That impression management really sticks with me. You know, why do we care what other people think? I I know that I've had that feeling. You just feel like everyone's looking around at you saying, you must be a bad mom because your child's melting down. But I just love how we can get through the frustration together. I really learned a lot. So if you need more support, Rebecca's book is called The Tantrum Survival Guide. Tune into your toddler's mind and your own to calm the craziness and make family fun again our kids are going to have big emotions, just like we do. But if we can stay curious and creative, we can stay connected. And that's what we all really want. I love that advice. And that's the show. Thank you so much for taking this ride with us. I want to thank Deborah Farmer-Chris, Rebecca Shrag hirschberg and of course, you, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend. We're all about community here, wanting everybody to get these resources because it's help. We're trying to help each other. And thank you to Munchkin. No wonder they're the most loved baby brand in the world. You can find all of your favorite Munchkin products at Walmart, as I said at Stroller Coaster, we're all about community. So if you have a question or a topic you want to hear more about, don't hesitate to reach out to us at podcastmunchkin.com. Hey, Justin, you want to tell us a bit about Storytime?
1: Stroller Coaster Storytime is another podcast that we do where we take classic children's stories and we sort of do them in our own way. It's for kids and parents. Uh, we have improv actors who, uh, who perform the stories. Lynn, are you familiar with Goldilocks and the Three Bears?
0: Sure, of course, a classic.
1: Well, we put our own spin on it. This is called Goldilocks, the Three Bears, and Aunt Joni. Important character. Here's a clip.
2: Goldilocks went into the house. In the kitchen, she saw three bowls of porridge If you've never had porridge before, you must try it. It's delicious. Porridge, porridge, it's not bad. It's so good, it'll make you glad.
0: (laughs) So fun. Justin, where can we find it?
1: It's right here in the same feed. Just look for Stroller Coaster Storytime.
0: Well, before we go, Munchkin invites you to join them in supporting the environment and the animals that inhabit it through organizations like IFAW the International Foundation for Animal Welfare. And now that you're ready to do something for the planet, how about you do something for yourself? You deserve it. Take a time out. Today, imagine you're sailing the North Atlantic. You have a cool mist on your face. The smell of salt is in the air. When you notice gliding along beside you a right whale with only a few hundred left, it's a rare yet joyous sighting. So enjoy.